So I'm giving a series of talks in this series on um, the Buddha. Um, and specifically I'm taking uh, incidents from the Pali Canon where somebody meets the Buddha and what happens. Um, and so far we've had uh, an occasion, this is sometime, quite a few weeks ago when I spoke about this, where the Buddha is wandering in India on his own and he has to stay the night somewhere so he asks a potter if he can stay in his shed, his work shed. And the potter says, you can, but there's already somebody in there. So if you'd ask them, so the Buddha knocks on the door and he asks him, can I stay here with you? And he said, yeah. And it turns out that this other person is uh, one of the Buddha's disciples, a uh, bhikkhu, a monk. Uh, but the monk doesn't know this is the Buddha. So it's a lovely meeting of the Buddha and one of his disciples where the Buddha knew that this man was a disciple, but the disciple didn't know this was the Buddha. So that's a lovely, intimate kind of... Uh, exchange they had in the middle of the night. And uh, last week we had a very different um, scenario where um, the leader of another uh, religious sect, uh, a man called Nigroda, challenges the Buddha and the Buddha accepts the challenge and uh, challenges him to a duel of words if you like and the Buddha accepts that and wins. Uh, so that was last week and this week we've got um, another one and this week is a fairly simple one actually seems simple enough to me and it's again from the Majjhima Nikaya last week's from the Diga Nikaya this is from the Majjhima Nikaya which is the middle length sayings you can see how big it is and they're very thin pages they're pages like the Bible you know those very, very thin pages so um, over a thousand pages of text here. And this is just one of them. Um, how many suttas are there? This is all just notes I'm looking at here. Um, 151 suttas here in the middle length sayings. And they're, they're called the middle length Majima because um, they're a bit shorter than the Diganikaya, which is the long ones. And bit longer than the short ones. So they're middle length. This one's only uh, one, two, three, three and a bit pages long. It's number 58 and it's uh, called the Abhaya Raja Kumara Sutta. So um, Raja is king, Kumara is prince, Abhaya is fearless. So he's a, uh, a prince called fearless, the fearless prince. Um, so let's just plunge in, shall we? Maybe I'll just say again what I said last week. It, my purpose in giving these talks isn't really to tell you teachings of the Buddha, but we're trying to find out what he was like. And um, when you go back to these old texts, you can, you can look through them and find teachings. Um, loads and loads of teachings, and there are teachings in this short sutta. Um, but you can also learn quite a lot about the Buddha by the way he responds to people's <coughs> different takes, the, the, the different ways they approach him. Um, actually, I, in this one I am going to uh, tell you his teaching 
to the prince because it's very much to do with the way the Buddha is with people. What, what, what we're trying to find out in these talks is what was the Buddha like? How did he speak to people? And the Buddha makes it clear here in his teaching what one of his principles for the way he communicates. So I, I thought we'd actually look at that teaching this evening. So, uh, so the, the Buddha was living at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove in the squirrel's sanctuary, whatever that is. Must be a place where the squirrels used to live. So then Prince Abhaya went to somebody called Nigantha Nataputa. I think, if I remember correctly, is somebody else just coming in? Ah, yes, uh, if I remember correctly, I think Nigantha Nataputa was one of the leaders of the Jain religion. Have you heard of the Jains? Jainism is similar to Buddhism, but different in some significant ways as well. So Prince Abhaya went to Nigantha Nataputta and after paying homage to him, sat down on one side. So then, let's call him Nigantha. Nigantha said to the prince, come prince, refute Gotama's doctrine. Gotama is the Buddha. Refute Gotama's doctrine and a good report of you will be spread to this effect. Prince Abhaya has refuted the doctrine of the recluse Gotama, who is so powerful and mighty. So um, he wants the prince to go to the Buddha and um, beat the Buddha in an argument. So you know what's going to happen, don't you? So the prince says, but how? Venerable Sir, will I refute Gotama? How will I refute his doctrine? So he tells him, he, he, he gives him a trick question to ask. So, go to the recluse Gotama and say this. So here's the trick question. Venerable Sir, would you utter speech that would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others? So if the Buddha answers like this, um, I, would, I would utter speech that would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others. Yep. So if he says, yes, I would, and I do, say things that people don't like to hear, then you can say to him, but what's the difference between you and an ordinary person then? For an ordinary person would also utter speech that would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others. So that's the first part of the trick question. But if the Buddha doesn't answer like that, if the Buddha instead says, no, I would not utter speech that would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others, then you've got him. Yeah, because then you can remind him that he once said of Devadatta, now, do you know who Devadatta is? Hmm? He was, Devadatta was one of his many cousins and uh, he's most famous in the Buddhist tradition for? Yeah, so Devadatta was um, a very, very talented man, uh, grew up more or less with the Buddha 
And uh, when the Buddha gained, gained enlightenment, Devadatta became one of his disciples and he was really, really good. He was a great um, monk, really a great bhikkhu. He, he gave up his home and his princely kingdom and everything. And he became a homeless wanderer like the Buddha and he did what the Buddha said and he, he made tremendously good progress. Um, he was one of the best, most accomplished meditators that the Buddha ever had. So he could do all sorts of things and he learned the, the supernatural powers. So he learned how to, through meditation, he learned how to fly, how to see through walls, how to hear people from a long, long distance, etc, etc. So he, he was really very, very good at what he did. Uh, but there's a, there's a downside to that, isn't there? Oh, well, there can be for some people a downside to being really good. You begin to realise that you're good. You compare other people unfavourably with you and you start to get a little bit above your station. Some people who are really good at something do that, don't they? They start thinking they're it. So David Atta began to think that he was it. And uh, he began to become jealous of the praise that the Buddha received from others. For instance, he was standing behind the Buddha once when he gave a teaching to the king. And uh, the king was so overcome with emotion that he just, he just threw himself down at the Buddha's feet and prostrated himself at his feet. And this really disgusted Devadatta. He really didn't like this and he thought, well, he, he could be doing that to me. What's so great about the Buddha? So he had that kind of attitude. Um, so um, towards the end of the Buddha's life, he was getting quite old and um, frail. And Devadatta went to the Buddha and said, look, you're getting very old now and ill. So um, why don't I take over? I'll take over your Sangha. And the Buddha didn't say anything. So Devadatta must have thought he couldn't hear, so he said it again. And the Buddha again didn't answer. So a third time, he said, look, you're getting old now. Why don't I take over? And uh, it was the Buddha's custom uh, if someone asked him something three times, he would answer them no matter what the consequences of his answer would be. So he would hold back from answering um, people if, if he thought, it, no, they wouldn't want to hear this. Um, so David Datta wouldn't have wanted to hear the Buddha's answer. When he heard the Buddha's answer, he really, really didn't like it. And the Buddha said something along the lines of, look, I wouldn't even hand over my Sangha to my great disciple Shariputra and Moggallana, let alone a lickspittle like you. <laughs> so, uh, not unnaturally, uh, Devadatta really, really was very angry and upset by this, and it, it really turned him against the Buddha. And the last few years of Devadatta's life, he was plotting and scheming to kill the Buddha. So, uh, this is what Nigantha is referring to here, that if the Buddha says, no, I wouldn't say anything that is disagreeable or unwelcome to someone, you can say, well, you did say something to Devadatta. He really didn't like it. So, so do you get the question he's asking? If, if he says, uh, he's, if the Buddha says, yes, I would say something that's unwelcome and disagreeable to others, then you can say to him, well, you're just like anybody else then. But if he says, no, I wouldn't, then you say, but you did. So that's the trick question. So, he says, what, what Nigantha says to uh, 
print the prince is when the buddha is posed this two-horned question by you he will not be able to either gulp it down or throw it up if an iron spike were stuck in a man's throat he would not be able to either gulp it down or throw it up so too prince when the buddha is posed this two-horned question by you he will not be able to either gulp it down or to throw it up in other words he'll be completely stuck he won't know what to do uh, so yes venerable sir prince Subai replied <coughs> so he went to the buddha sat down at one side looked at the sun and thought mm, it's too late today to refute the buddha <coughs> i shall refute the buddha's doctrine in my own house tomorrow so he invited the buddha to a meal so the buddha accepted it's strange that isn't it he looks at the sun and thought it's too late i don't know why it doesn't the text doesn't say why he thought it was too late but maybe he was losing his nerve a little bit even though his name is fearless maybe he was losing his nerve because he probably knew that the buddha is very very difficult to get into a situation where the buddha's lost for words so <clears throat> next day the buddha went to prince abaya's house and sat down and so then the prince asks him the question venerable sir would a buddha utter such speech as would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others so here's the buddha's answer there is no one-sided answer to that prince so that's really fox the prince he says then venerable sirs the naganthas have lost in this so the naganthas must be what the followers of nigantha nataputta are called then venerable sir the naganthas have lost why do you say this prince so then the prince told him everything that Nagantha had asked him to say. So that was easy, wasn't it? So the Buddha basically said, there's no easy answer to that one. There's not a yes or no answer. That's basically his answer, isn't it? Um, so. <clears throat> now the prince happened to be holding in his lap a tender young infant, a baby. The um, commentary to this text says that this is uh, a trick that people often use when they try to refute the Buddha in, a, in, a, in an argument. They would hold a baby in their lap. Can you guess why they're holding a baby in their lap? You, well, I'm, I'm not sure that he's thinking that the Buddha would have been violent to him. No, no, the Buddha was known for not being violent. Exactly, exactly so. If you start losing the argument, you poke your baby and the baby starts crying and you have to look after the baby, you say, excuse me, and off you go. So it's a way of not losing face, apparently. So there was this baby in... Prince Abaya's lap, presumably sleeping. So the Buddha said, uh, What do you think, Prince, if while you or your nurse were not attending to him, 
this baby were to put a stick or a pebble in his mouth, what would you do to him? Venerable Sir, I would take it out. If I could not take it out at once, I would take his head in my left hand, and crooking a finger of my right hand, I would take it out, even if it meant drawing blood. Why is that? Because I have compassion for the child. It's interesting that the Buddha um, brings this up, isn't it? Because you remember what Nagantha said to the prince. Let me put my glasses down there so I can... Remember what the Buddha said to the prince? If you ask him this two-pronged question... Yeah, it'll be it'll stick in his gullet, yeah. So that's very interesting, isn't it? The Buddha's using a similar kind of thing, kind of an idea. So the Buddha says, So too, Prince, such speech as the, as the Buddha knows to be untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial, and, which is also unwelcome and un, disagreeable to others, such speech I do not utter. So did you get that? So the Buddha doesn't speak things which are untrue, incorrect, unbeneficial, unwelcome and disagreeable. He doesn't speak. Yep. Such speech as I know to be true, correct and beneficial, but which is unwelcome and disagreeable to others, I know the time to use such speech. You get that? Yeah. So he's, he, he's got five things, hasn't he? In the first one, if it's all um, untrue, incorrect, unbeneficial, unwelcome, disagreeable, he doesn't speak. But if it's true, correct and beneficial, even though it's unwelcome and disagreeable, then he speaks. So this is true from last week, isn't it, when he was talking to Nigroda, those of you who were here last week. Nigroda really didn't like hearing what the Buddha had to say, but he spoke it anyway. Now, there's more to say here. Such speech as the Buddha knows to be untrue, incorrect, unbeneficial, but which is welcome and agreeable to others, guess what the Buddha does there? Okay, so it's untrue, incorrect, unbeneficial, but it's welcome and agreeable. Does the, speak or, does the Buddha speak or not? Yeah. No, he doesn't speak. Okay. <coughs> Another one. Such speech as I know to be true and correct, but unbeneficial, and which is welcome and agreeable to others, What do you think? It's true, correct, but unbeneficial, welcome and agreeable to others. Does he speak or not? Unbeneficial. Unbeneficial? He doesn't. So even if something's true, he doesn't say it. If, he's, if he doesn't think it's going to be of any benefit. Yeah. Such speaks as I know to be true, correct and beneficial, and which is welcome and agreeable to others. That's an easy one, isn't it? Yes, he says it. Why is that? Because I have compassion for beings. Now, if that was a little bit hard to follow, 
I've done it out in tabulated form here, which I can copy for you in the tea break. So you've got six possibilities. Six possibilities. If it's untrue, unbeneficial, not pleasing, uh, he doesn't speak. If it's true, not beneficial, not pleasing, he doesn't speak. If it's true, beneficial, not pleasing, he speaks at the right time. He knows when to say it. If it's untrue, not beneficial, but pleasing, he doesn't speak. If it's true, not beneficial, but pleasing, he doesn't speak. I don't know if this is helping, actually, me doing this, is it? <laughs> it's true, beneficial, and pleasing, he knows the right time. So, out of the six possibilities, he, he will only speak out of two of them. That's why he's known as the Mooney, the silent sage, because he doesn't say very much, because it's not often you get all those together, you know, the right combination. So, um... Can I have a question just for you? Yeah. Those two, again, yeah. the two he does speak Okay, it's true, it's beneficial, but not pleasing. In other words, it's unwelcome. He knows the proper time for speaking. And the other one is, it's true, beneficial, pleasing. He knows the proper time for speaking. Agree pleasing means agreeable and welcome. Yeah. So, there are... Mm. What if it's not true but beneficial? Not true, but beneficial. I think the Buddha doesn't consider that that's a possibility. It can't be untrue and beneficial. But there, actually, it can be, can't it, when you think about it? It's that old story of... Yeah, but you see... Yeah, but the, but the moon is truth, isn't it? Yeah. You can't tell a liar to get to the truth. I'll think of a situation. <laughs> well, I, I, there is a situation. We get it in beginner's classes, if you remember. All those... Yeah, yeah. You're, you're standing in the street. Some poor guy comes running along. He's really frightened. He goes that way. A gang come after him with knives and so on. And they, you see a guy go, well, yeah, I saw him. Which way did he go? You say that way, don't you? Not that way. Yeah. So you tell a lie. It's untrue but beneficial. It's untrue but beneficial, yeah. yeah. But the Buddha doesn't seem to talk about that. So there are... The Buddha would have just stayed quiet. <laughs> ah. Yes, that's right. He would have stayed quiet. Unless they asked him three times. We'll come back onto the three times a bit in a minute. So basically, it's very simple. He only speaks if something is true and beneficial. Those two have to be present. True and beneficial. For him, it's neither here nor there whether it's agreeable and welcoming or disagreeable and unwelcome to the person. It has to be true and beneficial. Yeah. So, I think this is uh, really interesting. It's, it could be something that we can learn quite a lot from, I think. We're very often in beginners' classes we get this. Somebody will say, yeah, but what if, you know, what about if my wife gets a new hairstyle and it really doesn't suit her and she comes back and says, how do I look? What do I say? You know, <laughs> what's happening back there? <laughs> What, you know, what, what would you say if, if, if somebody came along with a, I don't know, 
they thought they looked great in this outfit and they really didn't suit them. Yellow is completely the wrong colour for them kind of thing. Would you say or not? It's all that kind of thing. And the Buddha puts it out very, very clearly, doesn't it? It has to be true and beneficial. So there, there, there are times when something might be true, but it wouldn't be beneficial for the person to hear. Can you think of an example of yeah, that? Yeah, if it's too late to change, you say, yeah, you look okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you say, no, you look a right mess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If, you, if they got time to yeah. change it, yeah. Okay. So, uh, we're nearly finished with this one now, and we're quickly going to go on to another one, because it's um, related, I think. So that's what he says. So then the prince asks him another question, but this comes from the prince's own question rather than him trying to trick him with somebody else's question. So now they're back on proper human relation terms. He says, Venerable Sir, when learned nobles, learned Brahmins, learned householders and learned recluses, after formulating a question, then go to you and ask you that question, has there already been in your mind the thought if they come to me and ask me this, I shall answer like this. Yeah. In other words, have you got the answers already set for, to come out whenever you need them? Or does, that answer to, does the answer to the question occur to you on the spot? So the Buddha's answer to this is interesting. He asks the prince a question in turn. He says, as to that prince, I shall ask you a question in return. Answer it as you choose. What do you think, Prince? Are you skilled in the parts of a chariot? And of course he is. All princes know chariots. Yes, Venerable Sir, I am. What do you think, Prince? When people come to you and ask, what is the name of this part of the chariot? Has there already been in your mind the thought, if they come to me and ask me this, I'll answer like that. Or does that answer occur to you on the spot? Venerable Sir, I am well known as a charioteer, skilled in the parts of a chariot. All the parts of a chariot are well known to me. That answer would occur to me on the spot. So too, Prince. When learned nobles, learned Brahmins, learned householders and learned recluses, after formulating a question, then come to me and, uh, and pose it, the answer occurs to me on the spot. Why is that? That element of things has been fully penetrated by me through the full penetration of which the answer occurs to me on the spot. And uh, Prince Abai is very, very impressed by this. Magnificent Venerable Sir, magnificent Venerable Sir. The Blessed One has made the Dharma clear in many ways. From today, let the Blessed One remember me as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge for life. So the Buddha does better this week than he did last week with um, Nigroda and all his disciples, not one of whom converted to the Buddha's teaching. So I thought I'd just look at the sutta that comes just before this sutta. Number 57, it's called um, the Kukura Vatika Sutta, which means the dog duty ascetic. This is a very strange situation that the Buddha's got in to here. So, 
Somebody called Punya, Punya means merit, Punya was an ox duty ascetic. And someone called Senia was a naked dog duty ascetic. What's an ox duty ascetic and what's a dog duty ascetic? You probably want to know. Well, I'm going to tell you. Punya, the ox, doc, the ox duty ascetic, paid homage to the Blessed One and sat down on one side. While Senia, the naked dog duty ascetic, exchanged greetings with the Blessed One. And when this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he too sat down at one side and curled up like a dog. So the ox duty ascetic is someone, his whole spiritual practice is acting like a cow. And the dog duty ascetic, his whole practice is acting like a dog. So when they, when they come to see the Buddha, the dog duty ascetic pays homage to the Buddha and then rolls up like a dog down by his side. So can you imagine? These two have come to see the Buddha and this is what they're into. One of them spends all his life acting like a cow, walking around on all fours, eating grass, etc, etc, etc. And of course in India cows are sacred, aren't they? But dogs aren't. So this guy, Senia, spends all his time acting like a dog, eating what dogs eat and barking and rolling up like a dog and peeing like a dog, I suppose. All those things that dogs do. And so they've come to the Buddha with a question. They really need the Buddha, these two, don't they? Hey, John Lockett, have you never done that? No. Oh. No, I... Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> have you? Your times in India? Yeah, yeah. You have? I've related to dogs. I've run with the pack. You have? In Indonesia, yeah. In the middle of the night. Wow. Befriended by the dog of the landlord of that place. And, and I, I ran with the dogs at two or three o'clock in the morning through the moonlight. Did you run like a dog on full fours? Slept on the floor. Did you? With the dogs? No. Slept on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, in the house. Okay. Okay. So, they've got a question. Senia asked the blessed... Uh, no, Punya asked the, the, the Buddha. This Senia is a naked dog duty ascetic who does what is hard to do. He eats his food when it is thrown to the ground. He has long taken up and practiced that dog duty. What will be his destination? What will be his future course? <coughs> In other words, when he dies, where, he, where, where will he be reborn? Enough, Punya. Let that be. Do not ask me that. He doesn't want to answer. A second time, Punya asks that question. And a second time, the Buddha says, Enough, Punya. Let that be. Do not ask me that question. But a third time, he asked the question. So this, you know, don't you, the Buddha's his, uh, custom was if he thought the person, it would not be beneficial for that person to hear the answer, he would just remain silent. But he only remained silent up to a point, up to the third time of asking. Now, I think it was fairly well known in those days that if you ask the Buddha three times, he would give you the answer no matter what. Which is interesting because the Buddha doesn't say that in this other sutta, does he? He doesn't say, here, remain quiet unless 
somebody asks him three times. But you get this with David Atta. Remember the story of David Atta earlier? David Atta says this thing three times, so the Buddha eventually lets him have it. So Punya's asked this three times, so he says, Well, Punya, since I certainly cannot persuade you when I say enough, Punya, let that be, do not ask me that, I shall therefore answer you. Here, Punya, someone develops the dog duty fully and uninterruptedly. He develops the dog habit fully and uninterruptedly. He develops the dog mind fully and uninterruptedly. He develops the dog behaviour fully and uninterruptedly. Having done so, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in the company of dogs. So if you act like a dog in this life, <laughs> but it has to be uninterruptedly. And you have to get the dog mind as well, so I think you're probably right. Um, you end up as a dog, basically. So if you want to be a dog, just act like one in this life, and then in the next life, you will be one. <coughs> when this was said, Senia, the naked dog duty ascetic, cried out and burst into tears. Then the Blessed One told Punya, son of Punya, Punya, I could not persuade you when I said enough, Punya, let that be, don't ask me that. But Senia said, Venerable Sir, I'm not crying because the Blessed One has said this about me, but because I have long taken up and practiced this dog duty. So he's feeling a bit upset for all these, I don't know how long, he doesn't say how long. Would it be months or perhaps years he's been acting like a dog? Um, yeah. So then exactly the same happens with Punya. So Senya then asks about Punya. Um, what about Punya? He says, um, uh, Punya, son of the Kolians, is an ex, is an ox duty ascetic. He has long taken up and practiced that ox duty. So he's been acting like an ox for a long time. What will be his destination? And he the same thing happens. Um, he reappears in the company of oxen. Uh, so he's really upset as well. So I thought I'd just let you know that the Buddha sometimes is in a very, very difficult position where he knows that it really, they really don't want to hear this and he tries not to tell them, but eventually he just feels he has to because they just keep on at him. So what happens next is the Buddha then starts talking about the law of karma. And I'll just tell you a little bit about how it's teaching because it's rather lovely. He talks about um, uh, there are four kinds of action proclaimed by me. There is the dark action with the dark result. There's the bright action with the bright result. There is a dark and bright action with the dark and bright result. And there is the action that is neither dark nor bright, with neither dark nor bright result. So I'll just tell you a little bit about this now. So the dark action with the dark result is uh, unskillful actions leading to unhappiness. So dark actions leading to unhappiness. And I just want to say 
Uh, I just want to mention that because uh, I've never come across this idea of dark and bright before. And it's rather lovely, isn't it? So your unskillful actions are dark and they lead us into dark places. And the bright actions are skillful actions leading to happiness and freedom. Um, but, and then the dark and bright actions are when you sometimes do things which are skillful and sometimes unskillful. Probably most of us who are in this, uh, this category, I, th I should think sometimes we're skillful, sometimes we're unskillful. And that leads to a medley, a mixture of bright and dark results, happy and unhappy. So sometimes we're fairly happy and up and sometimes we're a bit low because of our previous actions. But the third one is neither bright nor dark. The fourth, the fourth one, neither bright nor dark, leading to neither bright nor dark. And this is when you gain insight so strong that you overcome the law of karma. So that your actions are neither bright nor dark. You've overcome that dichotomy of skillful and unskillful. Yeah? So the, the Buddha is known as Akiriya. Uh, Akiriya is the one without action. Doesn't mean to say he doesn't act, because as we know he did. He did act as the Buddha, but it doesn't have any karmic result uh, to him, because he no longer has a self that karma accrues to. So that's it. That'll, that'll do for this evening. And uh, then, finally, um, both Senia and um, Punya go for refuge to the Buddha. And they give up their doggy and cow-like ways and they start acting like humans again and take up their spiritual life and uh, I think one of them, one of them, Senia, gains enlightenment. So it was beneficial. It was beneficial, it was. Yeah, so the Buddha was very reluctant to tell them because it would have been unwelcome and disagreeable, but actually it was true and beneficial. So what was the problem? Why did he wait for so long? Why did he have to be persuaded? Is that a rhetorical question? Yeah, no, it was a question that I don't know the answer to. He didn't know, he didn't know how they'd respond. He may not, yeah, that's true. He knew it would be unwelcome, yeah. but would he it be... He knew for a fact it would have been yes. beneficial, but... Indeed. Would like a dog? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So this dog-like person wanted to gain enlightenment by doing this? Not enlightenment, they, they, they thought they would, they both had this idea they'd end up in some kind of heaven world. Well, there's no way of knowing, because there was those are the only two who went to speak to the Buddha. Maybe there was a whole sect of them, yeah. acting like dogs and cows. Uh, or maybe that was just the two of them got some kind of... Like, where did they get that idea from? Who knows? People do get some funny ideas. Doesn't it tie in with the stethicism that the Buddha had been through, sort of denying his human corporal health in the body? It's a bit different, isn't it? Because he didn't act like a dog or a cow. But he didn't act like a human that needed a human form. And, you know, mm. whipped himself and denied food. And yeah, that's still a bit different from acting like a dog and believing that you'll gain up in, you'll end up in heaven. It's a bit different.
Anyway, I think that will do for an evening, won't it? Let's go and have a cup of tea.